Good evening. Good evening. Jay is in the building. Jay is in the building. All right. Uh, well, we're just waiting for uh, our special guest to pop in. And there she goes. Uh, Shalee Severino. How are you this evening? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, Jeff, we have uh, our guest on tonight uh, on a breezy fall October eventful uh, time of the year for us. We're in uh, election year, so we have a lot um, taking place. So, uh, yes. Shelly, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself and we'll go from there. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Shaylee Severino. I also go by Shay, uh, for a quick reference. Um, I am a senior at St. John's University and I'm completing two degrees in government and politics and legal studies. I am also a paralegal down in Midtown and I focus on litigation, elder law, as well as immigration. And I'm also running for New York City Council District 32, um, which is made up of the neighborhoods of Bell Harbor, Breezy Point, Broad Channel, uh, South Ozone Park, Ozone Park, Rockaway Beach, Lindenwood, Neposit, and Woodhaven. Interesting. Hmm. That's a lot of well. Huh? Yes, Go ahead, it is Jenny. a very big district. Jeff, you were about to say something. Oh no, I was just saying it's a, it's a lot of that's a lot of neighborhoods, a lot of traction to cover. So I can only imagine how hard of a campaign this will be for a lot of people. And uh, it's pretty cool to have a, a second lawyer on the show back to back. That's that's pretty cool. Excellent. Well, Shelly, based on your photo, man, you look like you found the fountain of youth. Let me ask what your age is. Yes, I'm 21 years old. Um, and Ooh, by the time wow. of the primary election in June, I would be 22. Wow. Well, it seems like uh, the future of politics is getting younger and younger. And um, based on what we see with the older candidates, I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah. Jeff, you want to add something? Uh, when when did you um, when did you first start uh, doing your activism and getting involved in uh, government and politics? At what age did you would you say roughly you got involved? Oof, I honestly wouldn't even know what age particularly. Um, my mother is a community organizer, so I had always been around that sort of activism and organizing at home. And so it was a very seamless transition from seeing what my mother was doing with the community and, you know, being a part of it. So from really young age, you know, she would she would take me to her organizing meetings, you know, she would have me sitting there writing down any notes and being like the secretary. Uh, so it was from a very early on age that I was really able to see the power of bringing people together for a certain cause and really being able to promote that on, on a platform that is needed in order to really inflict change. Hmm, excellent. Interesting. Well, it, it seems like the District 32 is pretty, it's an interesting district demographically when you, when, when you break it down. Uh, and ha have you started reaching out to all the different parts of the district or you just formulating your, your campaign right now? Yeah, so yeah, District 32 is very, very unique in terms of demographics, of age, of just different political spectrums as well. 
So it's mm -hmm. really having to bring together a platform that can really speak to the different issues and that people can get behind. So a lot of the things that are on my platform I always talk about is being about basic human rights issues, right? Like everyone deserves to have affordable housing. Everyone deserves to have proper education. Everyone deserves to feel safe in their communities. Um, and I think that a lot of the different aspects of my platform can really bring people together. Um, I officially launched the campaign August 11th. So it has not even been two months yet, but I have been able to reach out to many different um, organizations, um, civic associations, and people just overall in the community and all different sides of it, you know, different neighborhoods as well. Um, I have been able to meet with them, thank God, <laughs> despite with COVID and everything, um, in terms of, you know, what the issues are and how can we really properly address them. Uh, I think the entire course of my campaign is going to be me meeting people. Uh, that's the best part of campaigning so far, is being able to speak to so many different people with even different backgrounds and political views as well. And getting into those discussions has definitely been eye-opening. Um, and so, yeah, I've been able to do that so far, but I know that's going to be a continuous thing throughout the course as well. Okay, interesting. Uh, well, I, I know uh, one of the topics I wanted to uh, touch on was uh, education on the schools. So mm -hmm. I guess maybe we could start on the mainland and then work our way back into the Rockaways. Okay, yeah. Um, so education is a very big part of my platform. Um, but also just something that I truly, truly believe in. I, I have a platform called ECY, which is Education, Youth, and Culture. And basically what that really talks about is being able to properly fund our, our schools. For so long, we have been defunding our schools. And we have to be able to really address the issues that come with that, right? Teachers don't have enough um, supplies, especially now during COVID. Teachers don't have enough resources. Um, and at the core of it, if students aren't doing well, then we need to look at that issue overall. Um, and what we're seeing is that we're not doing enough for our public schools. I'm a very big believer of them. <laughs> I am a product of public schools. I went to public school my entire life. And so I know that I've seen, you know, teachers having to go out of pocket to get certain things for the classroom or not being able to properly assist students who might not have the technology um, at home. It was around high school, um, the time that I was in high school, that a lot of the classwork was also being given online, or you needed to do some sort of research or something like that at home to complete an assignment, but not everyone had access to internet at home, or not everyone had access um, to technology overall, like a phone or a tablet or a laptop or anything. And so a lot of disparities was being, you know, put front and center even throughout my time of, of, of being in school. And so I know that these issues are still going on today. They're not, they have not been fixed. You know, it wasn't too long ago that I was in high school. So this is very, very new um, topics and, and conversations that, that has been happening, but has never been brought into center stage until now. Oh, wow. So I, I want to add on if you don't mind. Sure, um, go right ahead. Um, definitely. You pointed out something that's very dear to my heart, and I'm very glad that you brought it up. Um, you're a strong supporter of public schools. I, for one, yes. came from public schools. Um, I would also would like to say I can speak for us that we've actually turned out to be pretty well individuals, wouldn't you think? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm not a big fan of charter schools. 
I'm not a big fan of of most private schools because a lot of these private schools make it almost nearly impossible for our people to get into these schools because of, of course, the tuition fees mm-hmm. and things like that, that, that stop a lot of it. But what you touched on when you said defunding education, I, I want you to just kind of touch on that just a little bit more by what, what do you think has been defunded, what you think should be refunded, or what you think should actually get the most funding? Yeah, so our we have been removing money from the um, Department of Education for the past decade, if not longer. Um, and we're seeing the repercussions of that when schools don't have enough um, to have proper staff, there's not enough guidance counselors, there's not enough people with resources. I think a very crucial part of the conversation is not having you know mental um, assistance in these schools, right? We don't have people that students can go and talk to if they have an issue. Um, And we're seeing, especially now during COVID, where this is also affecting people's mental health on a extreme level that has never been really seen before. And so now that we're in the conversation of school, well, let's talk about how can we properly ensure that these schools have the resources that they need, right? Why don't we have enough nurses in certain schools, but we have enough NYPD officers and public safety in them? Right? Why don't we have enough supplies for teachers so they don't have to go out of pocket and they're not being given that money back at the end of the year? Right? Why are we not incentivizing you know, the schools to really properly have the, the supplies that they need, not having up-to-date laptops or lap, uh, laptops or, or iPads even, or anything that revolves around technology, right? especially now that technology is advancing like crazy. Why don't we have every single school with those resources? And then we're also seeing how certain schools don't have anything at all. Um, and that can be brought down to the fact that we do have a problem with how we, we fund schools. Certain schools have less resources than others. And why is that? Why are we not tackling that issue in which we know the people who are going to suffer the most are Black and Brown students, right? And so my biggest issue with that is that we're giving a lot more money to other departments, we're giving a lot more money in places that we don't even know about, right? There's money that is supposed to be allocated, you know, to certain things, and then we're seeing that the exact opposite is happening. And so where is that money going? And so these are answers that I definitely want to know, right? You know, even more recently with um, the cleaning of the schools for COVID and the reopening, we're seeing how teachers are also reporting like, hey, this is not even clean. Right. Like there's roaches everywhere. There's still not proper ventilation, but an allocated budget of billions of dollars was supposed to go towards cleaning schools. So what's what's going on there? Where is the link? Because I'm not seeing it. Teachers are not seeing it, you know, and we need to really talk about where is the money going, because it's definitely not going to our schools. It's not going to our students and they're not going to teachers. Well, you know, I uh, worked in DOE for two years, and I, as fast as I got that job is as fast as I got out. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it had to do with, I'm going to tell you right now, the DOE, it's not a lack of money, really. The DOE just has a, a very, well, let's just say a very questionable um, budget committee, a very questionable payroll mm-hmm. uh, department. And um, I feel that there are certain people in DOE that get paid way too much. Um for what they do. And there's a lot of underpayments for a lot of different areas. Like you mentioned, guidance counselors, after school programs, teachers, 
I mean, well, a lot of people will argue that teachers are well paid in New York City compared to other parts of the country. But um, not needless to say, <laughs> yeah, needless to say, this is New York City. All right. No other city in the, in the, in the country is like New York. Right. Um, and unfortunately, that a lot of this stuff, like any city agency, in my opinion, is that there's just a mismanagement of funds. It's kind of like the mm-hmm. MTA with the DOE. The MTA always cries broke, but then they right. get a bailout and then still they don't improve the service and things like that. Like Chancellor Cardoza almost gets paid as much as Mayor de Blasio, which is very strange to me. Now I get it. There's a huge school system to, to overmanage, but at the same time, there are people under him as well that get paid a crazy amount of money and all that money can also be taken from other places, of course. But um, I'm going to tell you right now, it's every city agency. So, um, you know, from the top down and it's just a mismanagement. I see it all the time in the city. And I wanted to know your opinion on how, as far, how, how do you think wealth should be managed in New York in terms of like the budget? Cause you're going to, you're going to play a big part in that. Let's say you do become city council. You're going to play a big part in the city's budget. Right. So, like, where, where you where you think you stand in that in that department with with money and management in uh, New York? Yeah, definitely. Just touching on something that you had said regarding the mismanagement of money within the department, and you're absolutely right. I think part of the work that needs to happen um, with city council is really going line by line and looking at where the money is going, um, and if it's needed to go to these certain areas and certain places. Because you're absolutely right. Teachers are not well paid in New York. Um, and that needs to change because we know that we have a, a situation where New York is expensive. <laughs> New York is expensive to live in. And if we're not prioritizing teachers into the conversation, then what are we prioritizing, right? And so we definitely need to look at how the money is being managed within each department line by line. Um, there's obviously going to be certain things that are not needed right now, right? And that, that can be thrown into any department that can be thrown into any agency really that does not, that is currently not managing funds correctly. Um, for me personally, I think one of the most priorities, uh, most important priorities within city council would be ensuring that everyone has equitable um, access to foods, to jobs, and overall having a good quality of life. Um, and that can be brought down to so many other things, right? Making sure that we have enough centers around our communities to make sure that we have places so that our youth and our seniors can go to and have access to. Um, and I think then all of that really comes down to the city council budget because we have to know what are we going to prioritize. Um, and so for me, it would be ensuring that, you know, COVID-19 is still going to be happening. Um, hopefully not. Hopefully it's not as bad um, anymore by, by the time that, you know, city council would have to make the budget, but we would still be dealing with the aftermath of COVID-19. And what we see that that has had an impact on is on jobs and unemployment and people being able to find equitable jobs. Um, we need to talk about the fact that housing is ridiculous in New York and we're going through a housing crisis and we have been long before COVID as well, but it's been you know brought to center stage because of it. And so how are we gonna tackle it? How are we gonna address it? Um, we need to talk about our homeless population and as, as well as our form- formerly incarcerated population as well. And do they have the resources that they need um, to acclimate back into society? Do they have housing available to them, right? And what does that look like? And making sure that the budget appropriates so that we can fund um, housing for these people. Um, 
part of that budget also has to account for creating new jobs, right? How are we going to create new jobs? And I'm a big, big supporter for going green. Going green can bring over 26,000 jobs to our city, which we're going to desperately need. Um, and, and talking about how we're going to allocate that money to be able to afford these jobs. Um, and so part of the budget is going to be talking about what are the most crucial things that we need right now to stay afloat because a lot of New Yorkers right now are suffering, right? And so we have to ensure that we're tackling the bare, the basic needs first. And so that's something that I would definitely prioritize, you know, going head first um, into that. I'm already working on plans and actual policy, um, including, like I said, going green, what that would look like. Um, me and my team, we're already working on actual policy to bring forth. That's something that we're not seeing, that I'm definitely not seeing a lot of from other city council candidates, right? And, and that's not just in my district, but in any district at all, um, we're not talking about what the plan is going to be or how we actually want to address these issues. And so one of the main, one of the main targets for me is to be able to tackle that now. So that way day one, we could go full speed ahead. Hmm. Well, interesting. I, I, the way I look at DOE, I, I... I think that the, the entire department should just be dismantled and, and start all over again. Uh, and I, I really feel that there there is a lot of waste. And also, I think the people that run DOE to really uh, have a, a, a better uh, outcome from the student population in New York City, I think the people that run New York City, their children should go to public school. And right. the majority of the people who run DOE, their children are in private schools. They do, they're not part of the public school system. So I think mm -hmm. if your children are a part of that system, you're probably gonna go 110% right. uh, with your effort in there to, to make it better. Now, I'm sure there, there's a lot of waste in, in, uh, in DOE. Uh, and like you said, you gotta you got find out where, it, where it's at. Now. There are like uh, little factions in uh, in education in New York City. So you you have the organizations or the principals or let's see the assistant principal organizations, and that's like a you know a network of people that are very close. And then you have politics. So we probably there's a problem somewhere that a lot of schools are suffering, and. Uh, especially uh, in the black and brown communities. Uh, and the equity is, is, is not uh, equal across the spectrum. So um, that's something that the entire city council and the next mayor can hopefully sit down and, uh, and tackle. How do you feel on that, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, you know, same time, too. There's a lot of things, like you said, with the factions, and I agree with you. Um, I'm, I'm the one that's always going to have the unpopular opinion on this matter because I've worked directly with these people. And um, what I tell you right now is that I don't know how Shea feels about this. The city does a lot of wasteful spending and they, they give these unions way too much power. And now I'm not sitting here saying that we shouldn't have unions. The, the unions are great for the middle class and they're great for people of color to benefit from. There's a lot of great things that come out of unions. That's not what I'm saying here. But a lot of these unions, they get very greedy. They become very demanding. They become very political. They, they start to now own our politicians because of donations and campaign funds. And they're really swallowing up the system. Like these pension plans for DOE are way too high. If, if only people looked at the numbers, their pension plans are way too high, I feel like. 
I feel like they get way too many benefits. And, and it's not just the UFT. It's, it's, it's millions of other unions out there, too, that are doing the same thing. And a lot of that money, when you start to look deep down inside and you see how much money is being spent from these union negotiations and contracts with the city, people will be very upset. And this is why the competition is so high when people are trying to get these jobs. Because essentially, if you don't have a union job, you don't have a government job or some type of private contracting job, yeah, you're really not going to make it here. Hmm. That's interesting, boy. You're gonna have them. You're gonna have some union people chasing you down the street, yeah. <laughs> hey, listen. You know, just like Shay has a family that that comes from a background of activism. I have a family full of people who benefited from unions. You know, I'm very blessed now to finally be able to hook up my condo now. That you know, it's of course, it's my mom's. It'll eventually be mine. And, you know, a lot of it had to come from union labor, of course. But at the same time, things are different now. Like that worked for that generation. This generation needs a different system. Yeah, 100 percent. I I love unions, but I think that with that being said, it's important to make sure that the people who are in leadership positions with the, with the, within the union properly represent everyone. There right? you go. It's the same way that we talk about having leadership you know, in public schools, but then their kids go to private school, you know, you want to make sure that if we're going to have leadership in these unions, that they are part of the actual system, that they're part of whatever it is that they're representing, because that could lead to the problem that we're seeing now, where it's disregarded, right? You can't have leadership, you know, in, in, in the education system, but then their kids don't attend, because you won't give it your 100%. You won't want to ensure that all of these are properly thought out. So it's important to also empower, you know, anyone else within the union to take these leadership positions and giving incentives for them to do so. Interesting. What, what do you think? What do you what do you think about pri uh, privatizing education in a way where you take less government out of out of the hands of uh, of education? And what how do you think parents do you think parents should have more power in schools? Because I, I believe parents should have more power in schools. They should be able, the parents should be able to decide how their kids want to be educated. That's my strong opinion on that. Mm, I would partly disagree, um, only because I know that we have to acknowledge that there's going to be parents out there who are not going to want our kids, you know, to really get the education that they're not getting now, right? So you could have a, a parent say, yeah, I don't want you to teach my child you know, that Christopher Columbus wasn't this glorified person that we think he is, right? So if we have, you know, more input of the curriculum from, from parents, it can be very problematic. Um, but I do think that we should incentivize more parents to get involved with PTAs, more involved in how um, the after-school program looks like for their child, um, or what kind of services are being even offered at the school. Um, depending on what the needs are of the community as well. So I think having that input would be great to see, and it's desperately needed. Um, but I think when it comes to the curriculum, it's really our, it's, 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 it should be our incentive to make it better and make it more inclusive because we know that it's not. And we know that our history is often left out of the conversation. And that's an issue that we have to tackle as well. I know that it's not a city council, jurisdiction thing, but we can directly work with State Assembly and State Senate to ensure that we have a curriculum that is best adequate to talk about the issues that are often left out. You know, we're not taught about, you know, the Black Panthers or the Young Lords. We're not talked about 
you know, the fact that the history that is currently taught is very Eurocentric. And what does that do for a black or brown um, student growing up in that and then not learning their own history as well, which is American history. <laughs> so it's, it's part of the issue, it's part of the problem. Um, and I think that if we have more parents who are involved in that curriculum change, it can be very, very problematic because not everyone has the same views that, you know, you and me might have. And so we're going to have that issue where certain kids are going to be taught something and then other kids are not. And then you're going to have that imbalance. So we're going to see that a lot more depending on how rich the neighborhood is, right? Like how rich is the neighborhood of a child who's making the medium income is maybe 100000 versus someone whose income is maybe 30000 and they can't make it to those meetings that talks about the curriculum change, right? And so we have to account for that as well. Um, but yeah, I think that there's definitely needs some, to have some more input from our parents in involves of everything else but curriculum. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I just think that PTA is is a complete waste of time, and that's why a lot of parents don't show up because they really don't have any essential power. They're just more there just to be advisors. They're just there to listen to what the school and the chancellor is going to do anyway. So I feel like there should be no point in a PTA, really, if they're not going to really have any decision-making uh, abilities. I believe in a true democracy. You know, I'm, I'm a very different person. You know, I feel like just give the people what they want. And honestly, a lot of the stuff that they learn in school now, it, it don't matter if they learn about the Black Panthers, they learn about Christopher Columbus. None of that stuff is going to even benefit them later on. So I, I feel like the school should really start to touch on teaching finance, teaching kids about taxes, teaching kids how to prepare themselves For mentally sure. and, and things like that. Because honestly, what we're learning in school now is a joke. I'm starting to think school is a joke, period. And I don't have any kids, so it's hard for me to talk. But I've been in the system. And of course, we came from public schools. It's a joke. I can't tell y'all anything. The things that I have done in the past five years of my life, school has never taught me. Okay, well, you said uh, certain things about uh, teaching history. So if, in my opinion, if it's okay to, to teach uh, Eurocentric history, then it, the same should be applicable for Asian studies, African studies, and Hispanic yeah, studies. Yeah, but see, what people got to so, understand, Ed, is though, I understand, not to cut you off, but what people got to understand is American history does come from Eurocentric history. That's just the bottom line, really, of this country. And I tell a lot of Black people, and a lot of people of color is that, um, you know, this country was never really was never really um, for us. And the system was never really built for us because remember, you know, when the British came here and they took over and we had the colonies or whatever, that's Eurocentric history, basically, like America came from Europe. You know, the, the people, the founding fathers were European. That is correct. Yeah, you definitely have a, a point there, but I think that it's also important to highlight the history that has came from, you know, minorities traditionally, right? The movements that had come from us, you know, Black people in America. And so why not have that also in the, on the conversation? Um, I think that it's important to know our history. It's important for us to be able to use that because especially like for me now, as, as I reflect on the people that have come before me, especially in the civil rights movement, and you know, the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, I take that as inspiration to see that the system, as you, as you said, the system has never really been built for us. And so seeing that, that empowered group of people saying, we want change, we're seeing the same thing happening now with my generation, especially in the front lines for that fight. And so I think it's important that we also acknowledge that history plays a very big role 
because we continuously repeat it. So we have to be able to learn from the people that came before us, the, the fighters of the fight, <laughs> for the lack of better words, um, in order to really understand the dynamics that are in play and where we stand on all of that. So I think it, it's, it's definitely a well-rounded discussion of how do we properly ensure that people are invested into that part of the education of the curriculum. We definitely need more finance and taxes, classes involved in a high school curriculum. I know definitely I didn't know how to, I, I did not know how to spell out a check for the longest time. And why is that not taught in high school? Like, why are you not learning that? How are you not learning how to, you know, really build and acquire credit? You know, why isn't that a conversation as well? And so we definitely do have to change the curriculum in a way that makes sense and really talks about real life um, scenarios, real life situations, and really how to learn about acquiring wealth as well. Because we know that oftentimes our, it's our communities that are left out of knowledge on how to acquire wealth and what that really means. So we definitely well, do have to tackle that as well. Definitely. Well, if I, I, I think part of the problem is there's, there's a lot of racism that exists in education in America. For example, uh, the 1619 Project that's been taught in certain parts of the country, but uh, our president uh, has threatened to withhold funding from any uh, states that are teaching the 1619 Project. So um, the, the students need to know about uh, the American history of slavery and what really, what really built America. You know, uh, you could say America is great, but how did it get great? Somebody had to build it, and everyone that built it was not paid. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, again, you know, I'm very, I'm very conservative when it comes to education, honestly. I don't believe in holding people's hands. And honestly, knowing your history is important, of course. But I'm going to tell you all right now, this is really strongly how I feel. This is what I, I can speak only for myself in this case, is that I've had, I was lucky enough to have teachers who cared a little bit. So what I did was I took the initiative and I went and spoke to my teachers and they taught me things that they probably could not teach the whole entire class that they didn't have permission to, right? But at the same time, you know, knowing about the Black Panthers is great. And I know a lot about them, Huey Newton and all of them is very important for our people to know about those things. But I'm gonna be honest with you, the Black Pan knowing about the Black Panthers and the KKK still isn't helping my life, really. I'm just keeping it real. Like, I feel like when it comes to history, that stuff should be optional in a way, like people should actually know their history on their own. They should be trying to find out history on their own. I should not be waiting for someone to tell me about my history because how well, do I know well, this person is telling me the truth? Well, I, I can tell you one thing. If you don't know your history, you're definitely going to repeat it because if you look at the current climate in America no, right, right now, you're right, history but you have is, options. is about to repeat you, itself. You have no, options, no, you though. You, you have the internet. You have YouTube now. You have all these other channels you can do to learn that stuff. You don't need to go to school to learn this stuff. Here's, here's your thing, Jeff. If I, could, if I could go to school and learn about the 13 colonies and the, and the founding fathers. I don't think we should care about that either. Hold on, let me finish. Hold on, let me finish. And, and the Christopher Columbus uh, be all bullshit, then uh, my history should be taught. Uh, Asian history should be taught. Hispanic studies should be. If you're going to talk world history to a vast diaspora of people of all races and all nationalities, then you need to do it correctly. You cannot just uh, teach 
one segment of history and leave out everyone else. I, I don't believe in that. And you need I, to know I don't either. I don't either, you but know? I also feel like we shouldn't be learning about nobody's history because how I learned history was through my friends and different cultures. That's how I learned the real history. Jeff, 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 Jeff. The majority of Generation X, there was a survey taken a couple of weeks ago, have no idea what the Holocaust was about. You mean that millennials? That was that was millennials. Millennials, you sure? Yeah, it was millennials. And I don't really believe those studies because I learned about the Holocaust and I'm a millennial. I learned about that in school and I didn't go to the great, I didn't go to no yeah, great school. I, I, I looked at a video and, and the reporters were going up to people and they, so many, far too many were completely clueless. What? So you, if you, you survey two people out of a hundred and then that means everyone if, if don't, don't know about if, it. If you don't understand what took place during World War II, then what do you know prior to World War II? Or in the 50s or in the 60s. That's, that's, but I mean, we just troubling. said we just said that the school is Eurocentric. So if it's Eurocentric, how come nobody knows what the Holocaust is? If it's Eurocentric, if that's European history. That's not our history. That, that that's interesting. So so why does a a certain demographic of America have no clue? Well, you mean generation? They ain't even talking about demographic. They talking about a whole generation that that they're saying forty something percent. Don't I, I really don't believe it? I don't believe a half these studies they come out with really because that's impossible. Everybody that I know <laughs> knows what the Holocaust is. I, I, at my age, I, I really can't tell you one person I know that don't know what the Holocaust is. Jeff, I, I don't know I, where I, they find I, these I people. Could, I, could pro- I could find them. We, we could walk around and, <laughs> Jeff, there are a lot of people that are clueless. And I'm not even just talking about the Holocaust. If you ask them, oh, when was the Korean War? Yeah, you know, people are just products of their own environment. That's all I can no. say. Or, or you can ask, uh, you know, people a simple question, like a geography question, like, okay, Where's the South Pacific? How many oceans we have? I know, but man, school teaches you all that, man. That's why I don't get what's going on. Really? Here. really? They, they do, man. I learned all of that in school, man. I, I bet you any amount of money you could probably ask an adult, how many oceans and seas do we have on the planet? I, I guess I'm too naive because that's common knowledge in my world. But I Jeff, think I that wasn't. also speaks to the issue that not everyone has that access to education or proper education as well. Um, I don't know about that study, to be honest. Um, It sounds like that could be a scenario where that's true. Um, But I think it's also the issue of, does everyone have access to education? Um, Are they actually attending schools? What's the percentage of people that are dropping out of school and why is that? What are the factors that they're no longer finding interest in school? And it really goes back to the families. It's broken families. It starts at home. Yeah. Don't depend on on the school system to completely educate your children when you have a job to do. Thank you. Thank you. That, that's where I was trying to get at. Ed. That's where I was trying to get at. Like I had to take it upon myself. I, I just finished moving a lot of stuff out of out of um, my mom's old apartment. Right. I found a books full of the book of knowledge. Now, Shay, you might be too young to know what the book of knowledge is, but they're like these old encyclopedias from like the 70s in the 60s and this is how they found their information before there was google right and my mom used to make me read those books when i was a kid and i never understood why she was so hard on me to read these books and now i understand this because you cannot depend on one system you should never depend on the government to take care of you for one and for two you should never depend on someone else to educate and raise your children and i really agree with that as a young person 
and we're not too far ahead. I'm only 25. So I'm telling you right now, I really believe the old way of saying, like, I believe in educating my own kids. I don't need school to teach my kids nothing, really. That's just me. I'm going to educate my kids. I'm going to train my kids. I'm going to teach my kids about wealth. You should spoon feed them at home. So by the time they go to school, they're already ahead of the game. They're prepared. They're ready. They're ready to challenge that teacher. Right. I I 100% agree with, you know, the importance of also educating your child at home. Um, That was something that my mom taught me as well. And so there is definitely value in that. But I think that is also an account that I think we can't just completely disregard the educational system. I still believe in it. I still I still think that there's hope to really talk about the issues that exist and changing it. Um, but I, I do and, and, and it's really for the fact that not everyone's gonna come from a home where they they have parents so invested into their education. Or there's also a very big population of kids who don't have homes to go to. And so it's also that factor that we yeah, 100% agree that we can't depend 100% on the educational system. There also has to be some home assistance as well. But what about the group of people that don't have that? And so we have right. to make sure that what is also being taught in school is worth being in school, right? Because there's going to be so, there's so many kids even that I went to high school with that just didn't find the value of going to school. And it's the issue of what, what are we teaching our kids? What are we teaching them that they don't find important? or that they don't find the need to have to go. And so we have to have that conversation and that balance as well, because not everyone has, you know, a good home or a good father or a good parent that they can go to and be like, hey, I have a question about this. You know, my parents are immigrants and they're from the Dominican Republic. Um, And so a lot of the history that they knew, a lot of the things that they knew was Dominican history, you know, things about DR that is just not the same curriculum out here. So even though Mm. my parents were able to assist me, I couldn't depend 100% for them to teach me the things that I was learning in school or at least supplement it because it wasn't the same. I was able hey, to expand hey, my Listen, knowledge. I think it, listen, I'm, you're, you're, you're very amazing, okay? I just want to let you know, you seem to turn <laughs> out very well. Not seem, you have turned out very well, okay? So Thank don't you. think because of all these, all these trials and tribulations you've been through, I'm going to tell you right now, I grew up in Far Rockaway, all right? In the 90s in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and I never let my environment dictate who I'm going to be. Right. And, you know, one thing I'm going to tell you is, is that, you know, you're going to be, you're a young person. I'm a young person. And so you're hearing it from someone your age, you know, don't feel like you can't do something. Don't let these other people tell you that, Oh, you still got a lot to learn. Of course we all do got a lot to learn. Learning never stops until we Nothing. die. Right. You know, and, and what I want you to know is, is that, we need to start to uplift our people and our generation because just because you don't have a dad in the house, just because you don't have a mom in the house, doesn't mean that you're nothing. Like, you know, I, my mom raised me on her own and, you know, I, I grew up in the projects. I grew up in, in rough neighborhoods and I'm not a rough person. Really. I'm not a hood person. You know, I'm very well educated. I stay to myself and I, I do me and I've had problems. Of course, I'm not an angel, but, that did not stop me from being educated. It did not stop me from having jobs. It did not stop me from getting a college degree. And it didn't stop you. What, where, where do we draw the line and where we got to stop with the sympathy sometimes? We really got to start to like have people. Jeff, you, just, you just touched on something. And right about now, maybe I'm going to sound a little bit like Bill Cosby. But if you can't take care of children, don't have them. Yeah, there you do go. Children into this world. 
if you're not ready to take care of them and be a parent. Don't lead them out there into the wilderness to figure out their things on their on their own, because that's the damn problem right now. The streets are taking our children. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, I really want to know. So so Shay. This is the this is the last thing I'm probably going to ask you because I want to hear more from you and your platform. And, you know, we do this a lot on our show. We, we're kind of not your traditional interviewers. We keep it real and things <laughs> like that. that. And, you know, what I really want is the last thing I want to ask you, though, I really want to hear from you is don't you think that the broken families and I'm talking about from a person of color to another person of color we got to start to have accountability as well. We can sit back and keep pointing fingers because I think we do deserve more. We do deserve better from this country. I, I'm not going to sit up here and say we don't. But why can't we start to accept ourselves more and grow together and be together more before we go and try and keep begging to the other people to give us something? How do we make our community stronger? How do we educate ourselves better? Without school, without the system, without the government. Right. You got and any ideas? Listen, I do. <laughs> it, it really comes from us. Um, you, you did touch on the fact that, you know, we can't keep asking other people to give us things. And I'm a very big advocate for I'm not going to continue to ask our oppressors to stop oppressing us. I think that is ridiculous and we're never going to get justice that way or equity, in fact, in any area or any realm that we, that we speak of. And so there is a level of ownership with that responsibility that if we want to uplift our neighborhoods, we have to put in the work to do that ourselves. And so me and you were in the product of not letting our environment dictate who we are. And we've, taken, and we've done a lot with it, right? But not everyone has been able to do the same. And so we have to be able to reach out to those who haven't and provide them with that, with that guide and with that assistance that they didn't really have at home. And so if we're going to talk about uplifting our neighborhoods, it's on us to uplift our neighborhoods. We can't really depend on everyone else to do the work. We have to put in the work. We can't be upset that there's people, mm. you know, who go to the streets or who take a different path than us when we're not doing the work as ourselves to make sure that they also know that there's another way. So a part of that is talking about providing more resources for ourselves. Why not start a, a youth group? Right. Why not start a activist group where we we teach each other certain things. Right. The whole aspect of education. Why not teach ourselves the people that came before us as a guide for us to move forward in this fight? Because the fight is still going on now. So why not educate ourselves on what was it in the past so that we can advance the movement to the next step? Right. So why not encourage each other to do that? Why not talk about the, the issues that are going on in our communities and why? We're not creating these these things and these groups and these these um, overall movements within our own neighborhoods. I'm a very big exactly. I'm a very very big like person for collective action and social movements and just overall people power. I believe strongly in people power, and I think that it starts with us. We have to get our neighbors together. We have to get the youth that we see that are doing things that they shouldn't be, and telling them, hey listen, I am here, here's my number, meet me here at this time and we're gonna have a talk, right? If we're the ones that we're able to not become a product of it, then it's also on us to ensure that we are uplifting our brothers and sisters in this fight. Because if we're not, then we're just gonna let them fall down to the system. And what does that do for us? 
right? For every, I don't even know what the number is, but for every few of us that do make it out, not everyone has that luxury. So we have to do the work. We have to put in that effort as well. And part of that is ensuring that our neighborhoods have the necessary things that they need. It's, it starts with us, you know, going into these levels of government and of power to be able to then give back to our communities to empower them to do better. Exactly. And, and, and you touched on something uh, very important. And, and, and Jeff led us to, to this conversation and this dialogue. And a part of uh, controlling your community is controlling the economics of your community. There you go. You need the business. You need the banks. You know, if, if you want freedom, you, you, you demand, you take freedom. You don't, there you, go. For you don't ask, right. you don't ask, you don't tell people that your life matters. You know, you know, within yourself, there you go. Nobody looked down on you. And until we start owning the businesses in our communities, you're not going to get the respect that you deserve. Now at one go. time, yep. one time we had it, Prior to integration, mm -hmm. I'm going to call a spade a spade. I think people of color, when we were segregated, we had a family structure. Mm -hmm. We, a lot of the businesses in our community. And once we integrated, and in the latter part of the 60s, the early 70s, there was a fast decline. All the way through the 70s, through the 80s, to the crack in the 90s. And here you, here you have us now. And and uh, just complete chaos. Yes. So it, it starts with owning your communities because others are looking to come in and take advantage of what you're not taking advantage of. And that's the big word called gentrification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's not just one demographic, it's multiple demographics that you battle with. Right. When, you, when you don't have banks in your neighborhood, when you don't have black banks in your neighborhood, that's a problem because there are black banks. Okay. There's a lot so of them. I'm going to say something that may not sound too popular. Okay. So when you have a congressman who, who sits on a, on a banking committee and you have a, a state senator that sits on a banking committee, why don't we have black banks in these black and brown neighborhoods? Mm. Wow. Who said that? I right? said it. <laughs> and, and, and that's a fact. So now you see... If you look at the, the political climate right now, so now we're jumping from education, we done jumped into politics, but you know what? Fuck it. It's okay. Let's go there. <laughs> uh, right now, we have like uh, politicians that are staying in office for half a century, which I think is a problem. I think there should be term, term limits in the House and the Senate. They're the problem. They're out of touch with reality. And if you saw the last debate, it was actually the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, yeah, so, it shows you, shows you these baby yeah. boomers are unstable now. We're going to see more people like Chalet. I wouldn't be surprised if you see a 16 or 17-year-old running for office because That's it's embarrassing. We because we are failing. The older generation is failing the younger generation. And they're rising up. Yep. And they don't like what they see. Yeah, we're they pretty my, my, my eight-year-old said to me, he's like, Daddy, if we just turn the internet off, the news and the TV for two months, everything will go back to normal. He's right. He's eight. Right. Yeah, he's we're, right. my generation, you know, we're, we're angry. We're angry. We're upset. Um, we haven't seen any changes. We haven't seen any progress. We haven't seen our concerns on the centric stage. 
until we make it our center stage, like climate change, right? Like just to dabble into that really quickly, climate change would have never been a conversation if it wasn't for Gen Z. And so mm-hmm. if it I hasn't it. been for us, you know, pushing the barriers because we haven't seen anything being done, a lot of these things would be without in conversation, right? It wouldn't be acknowledged. It would have never been um, at, at, any lo- at any level. But the only reason why they are is because when it comes to politics, we hold the largest electorate. And so because we are rising in number and holding that 13%, meaning we could really swing any election at any level, you know, now our concerns are being brought to the table, but I, I want to push it further where it's like, we need to get into these places as well. We need to get into these rooms as well, because we're again, asking our oppressors to stop oppressing us and we're tired of it. And so it's, it's a movement that really needs to happen at all levels and at all areas where it's not just asking and put, making sure that, you have two presidents on a debate stage talk about climate change at the very last minute, despite the fact that it was never on the actual plan to be spoken about, right? But also making sure that we're also getting into these seats, that we're electing people that also believe in the same values that we do, but also have acknowledged that these are issues and have a plan for them, not just seeing the problems and not doing anything to address it. And so my generation, mm-hmm. to be quite honest, and, and I'm, I'm extremely proud of that, we're pushing that barrier because again, we're pissed. We're angry. We haven't seen change. Okay. Okay. Shalee, um, we've, we've really beat education in the, in the butt. And I want to touch on something that is kind of like just as important. Mm -hmm. And that is the homeless problem in New York city and affordable housing. How do you feel about that? Well, to be quite honest, it's a human rights issue. Everyone deserves a place to live. Everyone deserves to have a roof over their head. Um, In New York, like we mentioned earlier, it has a very big affordable housing problem. And so we have to be able to address it head on. Um, I believe that we need to be able to step away from thinking that homeless shelters are the only solution. I think that we need to tackle it head on. So let's talk about the fact that rent is not affordable overall. And so for me, I, you know, this is also part of my platform, um, is really addressing the fact that we need actual plans. We need concrete plans to talk about the housing crisis. And it's not acceptable to just think that because of COVID, we can put homeless people who are extremely brave, right, to have to go to a hotel, but on a temporary basis. We're like, what are we doing for the long-term solution to ensure that they have a place to stay and that they have the actual um, needs, that the needs are being met. You know, they have access to apply for a job and access to be able to put food on their table as well. Cause it's not just housing, it's also all these other components that we have to tackle. Um, but we're seeing that people in positions of power are not doing that and they're not making the effort to address the issue. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think the issue is very easy. And I know people are like, oh, this guy don't know what he's talking about. Why he talking about this is easy. This is very easy to solve, honestly. And if you win Hit city, ca- if you win city council, you you give me a call and you you'll be you'll be the grand champion at this, honestly. <laughs> you know, not to say that you don't have an idea, you probably do. And people, do your research after this. Everyone that's listening, do your research. Look up the program in Chicago that they're doing for people who are homeless. And I think it's, it's phenomenal. They're giving them city jobs. And a lot of them used to be incarcerated. A lot of them used to have mental health issues. A lot of them used to be on drugs. A lot of them used to have alcohol abuse. 
And um, they put them to work and they get city jobs. They get the benefits as long as they come to work every day on time. Mm -hmm. As long as they go to work, they do what they got to do. They get their sick hours. So if they're sick, they won't be penalized. I'm just going to put that out there too. Um, They work in like sanitation in Chicago. They work in construction. They're working and even some of them are clinical workers. Some of them are also CNAs. You know, or they're also in a program where they're they're looking forward to, you know, getting a professional career. Y'all know where I'm going at. 100%. And, you know, what they're doing is it's a it's a um, actually a four year program. It's kind of like instead of going to college, you're earning your way for four years of learning a skill, learning a trade, getting a city job, getting your resume up. And they give you an apartment after you complete this program in four years. And you actually stay. You actually stay in the apartment during your four years that you're in this program. Now, if you fail to comply to a lot of these regulations, you're going to lose that place. You're going to go right back to where you came from. Mm -hmm. But Chicago has been doing this. Now it's been adopted by Milwaukee. It's been adopted in Minnesota and the program is working phenomenally. Over 70% of the people who participate in this program have a permanent place to live now at an affordable rate. What do they call this program, Jeff? Um, I got, I got to get the the exact name of it, but I'm going to bring it up to you guys in a second. It's like this big nonprofit organization that's funded by the city of Chicago and by all these states. Mm -hmm. And they're working hand in hand with the government to try and get these people off the street into permanent housing. It's like a contract that they have against, you know, the government benefits from their labor, of course, still. And the people benefit by getting a place to live at an affordable rate. Yeah. Cause, cause right now, currently, we're, we are warehousing the homeless and that's really not helping them because there's a huge mental health aspect that's not being addressed with the large homeless population right. in New York City. Uh, just the other day, um, an actor was walking down the street and someone just walked up to him and just punched him in the face. You know, as they, you can't walk the streets in New York with your children now without, you know, somebody that's not all there coming up to you and trying to assault you. So, that's a problem because there seems to be a problem with developers creating hotels that are really not hotels. And all of a sudden they're transformed into homeless shelter. That seems to be uh, the new get rich scheme for uh, in New York city. Um, also uh, in the district that you're going to be running in uh, in the Rockaways, they uh, converted a property to what is it? Jeff, a men's shelter. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a single men's shelter. Right, uh, 110th Street in the Rockaway. So I think COVID kind of shut it down temporarily, but I'm sure they didn't pump all that money into it to keep it closed. I'm sure they're going to sneak them back in at midnight eventually, one of these days. So uh, this is definitely uh, one of the issues uh, in the district that, that you're running for. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, my sorry, Shay. Uh, no, you're good. Yeah, my boy, we're talking about this on the phone, and my boy uh, Shay lives in your district. Um, yeah, he he lives in Woodhaven, okay. and uh, and you know, he we was discussing about mental health, and he has a very extreme conservative opinion on it. But then once I heard him out about it, I I understand where he's coming from. So. You're going to actually, this topic is going to come up when you're in the city council. And Rikers Island is closing. Um, you and, care about that? 
But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You know, it's still, you know, it's a lot of a lot of back and forth with it. But he says, you know, we still need to have these mental health hospitals. And I'm like, well, you know, these things don't really help these people. I'm telling him. But he's like, look, he's like a lot of these people are so far gone that they need to be isolated from the public. And I'm like, well, I was like, a lot of liberals are not going to want to hear that because they want to give them service. He's like, yeah, well, they can still give them services. They can still get treatment. They can still go on trips, but they need to be on an island somewhere until they're more. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, he's talking about Rikers Island, just like we have the, the Wards Island facility. So something like this already exists, people. People really don't really understand this already exists. They're already on the island, a lot of them. Right. And, and you know, and he feels like until they somehow get their treatment they deserve, they're under the right medications and they're no longer a threat to, you know, public health and, and you know, public uh, safety that they could be released from this island. Now, that's very extreme opinion, I understand. And I don't necessarily agree okay. with him, but we do need to do something about this. Wasn't there, a, wasn't there a huge legal battle against the state of New York like a decade ago for mistreatment of people inside these mental institutions yeah, and why right. they're released onto the street right now? Yeah. So yeah. I doubt we're going to go back to that again. You well, know. no, he, he's thinking of it differently. Like, they're going to have all the support there. They're going to have all the pharmaceuticals there. They're going to have doctors there. They're going to have all the social workers there, but they're just not allowed to leave. I don't trust that one. Yeah, I don't trust that <laughs> one either. <laughs> well, I mean, well, what's the real solution? Because you can't just let them roam the streets either. I honestly don't agree with them roaming the streets either. They, they're clogging up the subways. They're all over the street. They're panhandling. They're doing so many things that make people uncomfortable. And some of them are even well, raping women in broad daylight in the subway well you, you, here's another sad problem because a, a large majority of the homeless population are, are veterans and then you have families that fall in a close second to them so if 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 you could give your life and and lose limbs for our country then why can't our country take care of these men when they come back home exactly. why aren't they getting a proper help to handle the PTSD issues uh, that came from being in the military straight out of high school at a, at a young age that just messed their minds up so much that they cannot function in society. So if we really say, you know, uh, thank you for your service, if you really want to thank them for your service, you would take care of them. 100%. I think if you, if you go to battle for this country and lose limbs and, and, uh, and, and lose loved ones, you should be compensated. Yeah. Simple as that. We have definitely Done. failed our veterans um, 100%. And we have to do better to talk about the fact that there is a lot of um, homeless people who are actually veterans. And so part of that conversation is how do we tackle the mental health aspect of it? And how do we also tackle the fact that no one deserves to be locked away, you know, miles away on a different island for them to get the resources that they need? Right. And so we have to be able to provide them the resources that they need here, um, as well as giving them housing. I don't think that we can have both separate from each other. It's an overall issue that really needs to be brought together, because I think that that's where people lose their humanity as well. Right. Like this is a human rights issue. This is not something that is out of this world or a different thought or, you know, anything like that. This is really concrete that everyone should have the resources that they need and a roof over their head at the same time, right? And so we have to be able to ensure that we have services and adequate funding, as well as just overall land to make 
places for people to live. We need to have housing. We need to be able to provide them with the resources and programs as well for them to also get the help that they need. When it comes to our veterans, we have to ensure that they, they do have support groups as well. Um, I forgot the name of the study, but there was a study that was conducted that showed that a lot of veterans do much better in support groups. And so why don't we have that sort of community exactly. feel for these issues, right? PTSD, my sister, is actually uh, uh, in the military, um, as well as my brother-in-law. So I do come from a family and, and a background of law enforcement as well. And so I've seen how these issues Likewise. can really impact you. And so we have to get rid of the notion that veterans are, are, are nothing, right? We have to get rid of this notion that veterans don't matter because that's a lot of the narrative that has been going on for a really long time. And so we have to disrupt that and ensure that we're tackling the issue head on, which is providing more mental health resources around the city. We don't have them. That's why we're seeing a spike in these sorts of attacks that you were mentioning because we don't have the resources in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And we're seeing where the majority of these things are happening, which are in most black and brown communities where this is happening the most. So why are we not, why don't we have the resources in our communities? Why don't we? And it's, it's, it's the overall issue that no one has cared enough to put them there. No one has ever been in the position of power, especially when it comes to city council and using discretionary funds to make an open a mental health resource in your community if you know that that's a need. Why is that not an initiative for you? Why is that not a focus for you? If you have a big veteran population as I do, why are you not providing these resources or having that a conversation as well? Right, it's, it's, it does have to do a part with wrong leadership, right? We're not having people who actually care in these positions, right? But then we also have the factor where we have the societal issue where the narrative and the ideas of, of this topic of, of, the, of, these, of these groups of people are always in a bad light. No one likes to talk about, you know, the formerly incarcerated, right? No one likes to talk about the homeless population. No one likes to talk about the veterans. But why is that? Because of these connotations that we attach to them on a societal level, which then reflects on a policy level where they're not being addressed. And so that's also part of the overall fight, right? Like I have a whole platform on that as well in addressing those issues, not only in my district, because I do have a big law enforcement and a veteran population, but also around the city. We need to have more of these resources for people. We need to have a lot more housing for people because we're, we're doing temporary things that's only gonna fix a temporary problem. And then we're investing a lot more in that than actually providing a long-term solution. So it's also a mismanagement of money. That's true. Well, that's leading into another topic that's very important right now. How do you feel about the rise in crime and the way the city is being policed right now? This is a very, very dear to heart topic. <laughs> um, it's actually one of the main reasons why I decided to run for office um, because of the big issue of um, policing, police brutality, but then also acknowledging gun violence. And so I think that we can have both conversations of over-policing and also having the conversation of there's crime happening and how do we address it? Um, in my platform, I also do talk a lot about this program called CMS. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. It's crisis management systems. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of the work okay. that they do is reducing gun violence, as well as providing resources um, for youth and, and, and other groups as well, in order to ensure 
that they are preventing crime. And so I think with the conversation of um, policing and crime and everything, we have to acknowledge that when it comes to policing, when it comes to police officers, they do not prevent crime. That's not what they function as, right? They come after the fact. So we have to be able to tackle the issues that are going on and on a proactive and a preventative level, which is funding um, CMS and other programs that are, that are existing around the city that really focus on preventing crime. Um, and I think that that's something that we've never really focused on. That's something that we never really acknowledge because we, we have this, again, societal idea of thought that policing equals public safety when that's just not the case for many different neighborhoods, for many different people of different backgrounds as well. Oh, well, I'm kind of glad. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. Go I ahead, mean, I, no, I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad that you see you make more, you make more sense on this topic than anybody else who came on our show. Some people dance around this, this topic, and some people just say, <laughs> some people just say things that are just straight up don't make sense. And what, what you touched on is actually very important when you say like funding these, these programs like EMS and stuff like that, and. That's really how you're going to stop the shootings, really. Those type of programs is how you stop the shootings. The police, see, I'm sure you're going to agree with me on this. People don't really understand how police function in this country and, and, and what the system actually is. A lot of people don't really understand what policing is from both sides of the fence. The police are not there to be your military. They're not there to, to, to care for somebody that's in the street going wild, buck wild, and talking to themselves and all that. Like That's not what the police are there for. Right. The police are there to the police are there to enforce a law. Enforce. It doesn't mean to protect. It doesn't mean to babysit you and your baby mama drama, your baby daddy drama, and, and stuff like that. Like, you know, people really, I think from both sides of the fence, whether you're liberal or conservative, we kind of tend to hold police to a too much of a higher standard than they really should be high, you know, be be held to. So you should know. we lower the bar? Um Technically, I don't say lower the bar. I just say they need to educate people more on what police actually is and what they actually can do and what they can't do. And then we'll be way better off in society. People will stop calling the cops. You know, like the, what we say now, Karens. The Karens will kind of be be brought to a stop. Then, you know, then we'll have all these people who say that they're over police. When I'm be honest with you, I have the numbers here. There is no community in America that is over police. We don't even have enough cops in almost 95% of the departments in the country. So I don't want to hear all this over-police nonsense that people talk about. Now you can say, yeah, they respond to certain areas more than others, but that's not over-policing. That, that's not the proper well, term that's, you should that, use. Well, that's where the crime is. That's where you... Well, that's where I'm getting at. See, but when you say that, though, the ACAB movement, the Antifa and BLM will tell you that you're, you know, you're, you're going against their agenda and, and you, you're racist. You don't understand why there's so much crime in the area. I'm sorry. I'm one of those people of color who say, look, you know what? To be honest with you, I come from a bad neighborhood and some of these people deserve to go to jail. I'm just keeping it real. Some of these people don't well, deserve to be on the street. Right. But the, the, the crime is coming from almost every topic we did, we tapped on tonight. Yeah. And, 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 but, and but how and are you going to address all of that? Let's be honest with you. Are you really going to change someone who's walking around the streets like a zombie? Is that person really going to change? They're not. They're really not. I'm not going to have sympathy for someone walking around looking like a zombie. Like they, there's no help in that person. They're too far gone. Police can't help them. Social worker can't help them. That that person's never coming back. And people gotta understand that this is just how life is. You know, you got winners and you got losers. 
and you got people who are too far gone. You got people who don't even want no help. I've tried to help some of these people, and they don't want help. That is true. However, we have a problem with crime in New York City right now. It ain't so, going nowhere, man. It's are, are, only going to get worse. Are, are the police department, is the police department holding back? They, they, they're, that's not their job, though. Their, their job is not to stop crime, really. I know I know. I sound crazy. I well, sound like a broken well, record. No, 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 no. Police are, as a, when they patrol a certain area, they are serving as a deterrent to crime. That, that, that's it's all not, it is. Right. There you go. Right. going to prevent all crime because they can't be everywhere and see everything all the time. It's just not enough. Right, you know, but I think, so, if I may, I think the conversation needs to switch as well. Um, and I mean that not just this conversation, but overall in society, because when we talk about over-policing, it's talking about the excessive force of police officers when they do make an arrest or when they do target a certain neighborhood or area, right? That's what over-policing really comes down to. Um, and we see that. We see that through the cases of police brutality. Right. We see that through the immense of, of lawsuits against the NYPD force in New York, especially where 320 million of our taxpayer dollars go to settling those lawsuits against our own people. And so that's that's the conversation of over policing. Um, again, police policing in New York City and in everywhere else is not meant to be a prevent is not meant to prevent crime. That's not what they yeah, function not. as. It never was. It never, never was, too. was. So it's, it's, that expectation is very false, and we're seeing it played out when we have these instances and cases of police brutality. And, and it's not just police brutality. It's also assault and force of language and force of authority, and we know who they're targeting. We know who's the majority on the other end of the receptive um, spectrum, and we know that it's our people who are receiving these, these backlashes and these responses. Right. Right. And so that's well, the conversation well, of changing how we're how okay. we're talking about the conversation because I don't think that having more police is going to be beneficial. I don't think that that's going to be a solution to the problem of crime. I, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the selection process uh, for the officers that are already in there that may be a little aggressive, uh, retraining. And uh, if that doesn't work, then you know what? They shouldn't be in the the police department, because if you want to beat somebody half to death, then go and be an ultimate fighter. You know, if you want to get in the ring, then go be a boxer. But to beat someone to death or have your knee on someone's neck, I mean, that that's, you know, has is no has There's no, no regard for that. Uh, human being. Uh, so an, another thing is I, I just watched a video. I'm not sure it was somewhere on the West Coast. And it was a looked like a, a Hispanic officer. And the person he went up to, he jumped out the car. Uh, it was a of African-American descent. He must have hit him 30 or 40 times in the head. And this man is just covering up the entire time. And his partner was a female officer was just standing there. Not once did she try to stop him. So that's part of the problem. Right. Because if you continue to allow these officers that shouldn't have the badge to exist. That type of officer is making your job just 
even more dangerous to go out there and work every day because you're out there putting that uniform out there and you want to make a difference and you want to be a good officer and you want to do your job. So when you see something that's not right and it's wrong, you need to speak out exactly. against whether you're a teacher, whether you're, you're a, a, a person of the cloth, whether you're a Boy Scout troop, and y'all know exactly what I'm talking about because a lot of these areas have some of the most disgusting people on the planet Earth. If you yeah. don't speak out against yeah. it, you're complicit. It's not, just, it's not just police. It's all of us. We all have a responsibility to step up and do, do what's right. Right. It goes, so we can't have school complacent people either in these areas. Like certain jobs should not allow for quote unquote bad apples. Certain jobs can't afford that. Exactly. And, and that's the bigger conversation that I, I really want to activate within not only my generation, but everyone else as well. You know, we can't, certain jobs can't have bad people. We can't have bad doctors. We shouldn't have bad police officers either. And so I would even take it a step further than just retraining and really changing the, the system that they have in order to become an officer, which I 100% agree on. But I also think that we have to have the conversation of immunity. We're empowering officers who do bad, um, who are practicing and engaging into um, police brutality and, and other forms of assault and harassment because they know that they have that badge that's going to back them. And so we need to- No, you see, that's where, I, that's where I disagree. That's where I disagree on. People really don't understand what it takes to be a police officer. They really don't. It's a lot. Well, I listen, we, it's, a, it's a very- You very cannot just go and sign stressful. up and then you get a badge. Like, not. it's really not that simple. No, it no, it, it is a process, but but Jeff, there's there's I, I think they're the the wrong types are, are slipping through. But what I'm what I'm trying to get at though is not to cut you over. What I'm trying to get at is though, if someone was out to hunt black people and other people of color, they would not want to go through that whole process just to kill you all. They would just do it them themselves. Jeff, have have you looked at the FBI reports over the last 15 years and what they say about white supremacy? <laughs> are all in law enforcement nationwide. They're in the police departments mm -hmm. nationwide. This report came out in 2007. Yeah. yeah, you're right, but it's not all cops. And I'm be honest and with you, if they, really wanted, if they really no, wanted yeah. us dead, if they really yeah, wanted I, us I, dead, we'll be dead. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be on this podcast right yeah. now, honestly. I no, never and you're said right. all police officers, I said white supremacists right. are infiltrating law, not just law enforcement, they're in politics, they're doctors, they're... They're, you, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's just a way of life, and it's, it's a bad. Uh, uh, it, to me, it's, it's just. Mm, how it's? Oh my God, I'll, Jeff! I'll go, I'll... It's really, it's really, it's really bad what we're going through right now because, uh, you know, like stand down, stand by. Right. What kind of dog whistle was that, Jeff? This is really serious. That was scary. Right. Like that was extremely I, yeah, scary. I mean, I really I really today. think white supremacy is a white supremacy is a whole different topic from police. Really. Right. I really don't see how they correlate. Well, white supremacy itself is a different conversation. But in the conversation yeah. of policing, I think that we have to acknowledge that we have certain protocols and certain legislation that really empowers the excessive force that we're seeing even more so now on social media because we're not recording. Right. Why is it that our only form of defense is now a video for a lot of these cases? And that has to be the bigger conversation. I don't believe that all cops are bad, but I, I do believe that those and they're not. That, but I not. Do believe that those who are complacent 
and knowing that someone within their academy, within their department, within their precinct are, are actively working in these natures, I think you can't be complacent in that because that doesn't make you any better than the one who's doing the act. And so we have to have S a conversation silly. where we have to be able to have transparency and accountability within the system. I don't believe all cops are bad because I have family law enforcement and I know that that statement isn't true. But when it comes to the hey. conversation of how do we uphold these values and uphold in order to ensure that we have what public safety should be for everyone, because we know that it's not the same for everyone, we need to center stage that issue as well. I, I just also think there's people that ain't shit really either. You know, you, again? Got, you got people who ain't shit really too. You know, you got people who are police officers that really don't, they, re they really don't deserve to be slapped on the wrist. Like, I still feel like this system still needs to stay in place somehow. Like, it just needs to be implemented better. Right. Like, that, I'm, I'm telling y'all right now, you don't want, you don't want a society without law enforcement. I'm just warning y'all now. No, right. There's, There's a lot of evil people out there. We can all agree on that. But, but, but Jeff, when, when, when you have a, a, a musical chairs judicial system that uh, you commit a violent crime and you're out in 72 hours, that's a problem. That, that that's a problem. Yeah, I'm because they're I'm not. not that, I get it. They're I, not afraid of, of the law. But we all can't sit up here and lie. We all know somebody that really is a bad person. We all know a few people. They're really bad people, and if they get any type of leeway, they will cause some damage. Well, they're getting leeway now, and it's a problem. Right. We need to look at look at these shooters. Look at look at this woman. Uh, the the other night, uh, she heard a noise, and she went to her women to her window to see what it was, and and she was shot and killed. And our 14-year-old son came in the room and found her. How, how is it a, a, a state that, that really has one of the strictest gun laws in the country has so many guns on the street? Mm. How are they getting the street? How? Smuggling. Right. Well, then, then maybe we're not tracing our guns properly. Nah, it's, done, point, it's done on purpose. From the point of production to sale, how how, how are these guns just... The, I think the most violence with guns are in states with the strictest gun laws. Yeah, and why is that? Again, because you're telling one half of the population that are very noble people, very good to society, do everything. I actually believe most of this world is good. I don't believe most of this world is bad. I just want to clarify that. But you can't have uh, you can't have a state that says nobody can have guns at all. But then these people are always going to find a way to illegally get guns. Like, how are you going to protect yourself? I mean, if we already well, know I, that the police are not going to protect you because that's not what they're there for. And listen, so, if, if 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 we were true to the Second Amendment, you would and the right to bear arms. I think if the majority of the population knew how to defend themselves, yeah, you wouldn't have as much crime. No, you wouldn't. You the criminals would think twice before they bother someone or for, before they rob someone or, or attempt to rape or break into someone's home. So the, the amount of stress that, that, that is on cops right now, it, it, it's huge with all these protests all over the place. Like, you know, you go to work and you're like, oh, damn. You know what I'm saying? Some people look forward to going to work. But you're right. In the climate in the climate that we have right now, if you're in law enforcement, 
you know, you're probably wondering, like, shit, man, I got unlimited sick. Do I want to deal with this bullshit again? Every day, somebody spitting at me or throwing something at me or calling me names. When, when as a child or through college, they decide to go in law enforcement to make a difference. But now you're vilified. Yeah, these, these officers are still human people. And, you know, I kind of laugh at Black Lives Matter when they say, oh, we don't care about the black police officers either because they're part of a system. I'm like, that's very selfish. That's because when they take that uniform off, they're still a black person. Well, well, everyone seems to have an acronym now. And here's my problem. Um, well, it's not really my problem, but I'm a little bothered because here's the thing. I, what I would like to see, I would like to see Black Lives Matter raise hell for all the black on black crime all across America. Oh, no, you can't well, say that, man. You're not a real you're not a real black person. Not just police brutality. But black on black crime because does not exist. That's a notion that was Whoa. really put Whoa. into our community to think that that exists, but it doesn't. That's just crime. You know, that's the that's the line that white supremacists and others really like to use that is black on black crime and that's meant to deter from the overall issue of police brutality. And so we, I think that we really have to yeah, stick away right. from, our, right from in that, that case notion too. within our own community because it's it's not gonna it's not beneficial. Yeah, it's but not I working. mean, we did we did have bloods and crips though. I'm just saying and we did, and you're completely right. And we do have crime in our communities that really you know use and there's gun violence as well, and that's absolutely correct. But I think that we also have to be able to have both conversations because when we try to use black on black crime to defend or deter the, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think that's not, it's very contradictive to the overall goal, which is to make sure that our people are getting justice when it comes to these instances. Well, well you could say it's contradictive, but you shouldn't ignore it either because no, it still happens. Right, and I, and I think that's the bigger and, conversation because it's also people on the other side that I, I find myself to be in a lot of this time is that we're not having those conversations as well, where we also have to talk about removing crime from our communities and talking about gun violence in our communities. And so we have to find a healthy balance in right. within both, right? Like we have to be able to have both conversations without deterring one or the other, um, because it's not it's not beneficial because both are hurting our communities. And so when it comes to right, right. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement that you may note um, may note of, I think that we have to acknowledge why Black Lives Matter movement came, and it's because of police brutality. Are they missing that link about crime in our communities? Yes, but oh, they're missing also, a lot more than that too. I mean, it's also having the conversation of not partaking into that um, erasure of the issue. We 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 can't we can't partake into that because now we're removing the overall problem of crime. Right. And, and the, there's also the, the notion and then the spread of the words, right, that gun violence can come from police as well. And so you're right. You know, not every police officer is bad. Not every police officer um, is is a white supremacist. Right. Like, I don't believe that at all. But I, no, I do think no. that we have to acknowledge that they have to also stand up for justice. Right. They also have to partake into the overall movement of removing people who aren't good within the system, right? Mm. I'm a very, I'm, I'm not against police. I'm against the system that defends people who do wrong, right? And, and, and we're seeing that through systematic oppression. We're seeing that through the policies that are in place. Again, going back to qualified immunity, 
That's why I'm against it. And I think that we should remove it because we're allowing people who slip through the cracks, as we say, to be defended and, and have that defense and know that they'll always be protected by their badge. But what their badge means to them can mean something completely different for someone else who really went into the academy, who went through that extremely long process, you know, to be now deterred from what they're doing. And so we have to have an equal balance of knowing that we still need policing or some sort of form of it, right? And that's why there's a whole movement for reimagining public safety and what that looks like because of the fact that we know and acknowledge that we need some sort of policing. Crime is going to happen. We don't live in a utopian world. But we have to that is very acknowledge true. that right now the system that is in place is not for us because we're seeing who's, who's at the other end of the stick. And it's us. It's our people. So if this system is not working, we have every right to say that we want to change it. That is so true. Well, Shalay, we had a very, very great conversation with you. And we definitely want to have you back on our show. Yes, thank you so much for having uh, me. I'd love to. It was a pleasure. Um, I, I think uh, we lost Jeff. Uh, but... I will definitely be in touch with you and it was a pleasure having you on and I want to thank you once again and I wish you the best thank of luck. Thank you so much.